Uh, Let us turn now to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 31. This is our sermon text today, as God speaks to us through his word read, and soon uh, to us through his word proclaimed. Uh, May we give our attention to the reading of our triune God's word, uh, holy and inspired and infallible forever. Uh, Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 to 31. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thus far ends the reading of his most holy word. Uh, Let us join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, holy uh, and full of grace for us, your people. Uh, We rejoice uh, in your promises to us uh, and in the fruit of those promises, which is our nourishment, which is our life. Uh, Lord, which is our joy, our peace, indeed our hope of heaven itself, and indeed of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, God, may you bring us there as you have promised in your faithfulness, and may we be encouraged even now as we spend time, uh, even for a little bit over an hour, uh, in heaven itself, uh, worshiping you and and doing in some measure, uh, though it is through the eyes of faith, faith, uh, in some measure, uh, what we will be doing forever and ever. And Lord, may we rejoice in this uh, for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen. So again, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 31. Uh, At the end of the day, if you reject worship, then you reject God. If you reject worship, then you reject God. Now personally, you you might not like reading. You might not enjoy hearing anyone talk uh, for more than five minutes, let alone 30. Uh, You might not really want to sing. You might not prefer the taste of bread or wine. Uh, You might not think uh, talking about your needs in public is very necessary. Indeed, it's quite awkward. You might not find joy uh, in giving away your money. You may feel a bit annoyed when people say uh, these uh, Christian things like, God bless you, or may he keep you forever. Now, for the most part, uh, that's all certainly your prerogative for six days out of every week. Indeed, for 313 days out of 
the year. They are uh, in many ways yours. Uh, But for 52 of those days, through the Spirit of God and in union with Christ, God brings his church into heaven on the Lord's day to enjoy that unending seventh day of his final Sabbath rest. Indeed, the Sabbath rest he is already enjoying. And here he does call us to do certain things, things he has promised to enjoy himself as his true worship, things that he has promised to bless us with as means of grace. And so we go through our order of worship each Lord's Day, not necessarily because it is what we want to do or because it is what we like to do, but first of all, it is because it is what God requires us uh, to do for His worship. But secondly, and indeed we praise God for this, it is what God has given to us for our good. It really is for our good. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who sanctifies us by the will of the Father, we will learn more and more to love God as we learn more and more to love his worship. And so we do have our text this day, uh, but briefly considering Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, uh, there it focused on the limitations of the earthly places of worship in the Old Covenant. Indeed, those earthly places were vital uh, to their uh, worship in their covenant. And then we went to Hebrews, uh, we would have gone through Hebrews 9, uh, 11 through ten eighteen, which then brought us into the glories of what Christ has accomplished, uh, is continuing to uphold, and is waiting to consummate uh, while he resides where? In heaven. And now we are brought, at this text, we are brought back down to earth, as it were, so that the preacher can explain to us the significance of our earthly worship today, our public worship of God as Christ's new covenant church. And he does this uh, to both encourage us in that true connection that we have to God's very glory in heaven, but also to warn us against, again, rejecting this earthly public worship precisely because of this gracious unity we enjoy with God's heavenly worship in Christ. And so noting those connections. So now, again, Hebrews 10, 19 to 31 Ultimately, ultimately, you are called to join God's heavenly worship on earth in Christ. That is what God is calling us to uh, in this text, to join him, to join God's heavenly worship on earth in Christ. And this is for two reasons, as we will see. First, it is because worship on earth is worship in heaven. Worship on earth is worship in heaven. And second of all, if we are following this, the logic of Scripture, a rejection of earthly worship is rejection of God's grace. Rejection of earthly worship is rejection of God's grace. And so again, first, worship on earth is worship in heaven, as we see, or rather as we hear in verses 19 through 25. So to begin, uh, where is God's holy glory most immediately revealed and enjoyed? Where is it most immediately revealed and enjoyed? Uh, As the preacher to the Hebrews has been saying all along, it is in the holy places of heaven. It is in the holy places of heaven. And so he repeats this point in the beginning of verse 19, uh, that because of Christ's finished blood work, we now have confidence to enter into these very holy places where Christ himself now lives. The great goal of Christ's gospel was to bring us to worship God and live. Uh, The great uh, goal is 
is to worship God and live. Uh, in fact, this has always been God's goal for his fallen people, uh, probably most clearly seen in the days of the exodus of Israel from Egypt to worship God in the promised land and to leave Egypt so that they might offer sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true God. And this is indeed uh, freedom of God's people from death and their sins. It is freedom to live with God forever in true worship. And this is all because of the grace, that redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. God has never sought to give man freedom to do whatever he wants to do or she wants to do. Instead, he has always intended to give his elect true freedom, which is, again, freedom to worship him and live in the grace of Christ and to enjoy this in a final, in a full, in a complete, in a consummate way in the glory of his new creation, which God first started to reveal to us, again, on that unending Sabbath day, that seventh day at creation itself, when he entered into his eternal Sabbath rest. This was the goal of Adam in the covenant of works. This is what he lost in his sin and in the fall of humanity. Nevertheless, this is also the goal of Christ in the new covenant of grace. And this is exactly what he has obtained for us by way of his own righteousness and what he gives to us by way of his redeeming grace forgiving us of our sins and counting us righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But here we are on earth. And so how do we draw near to God who is in heaven? How do we draw near to God who is in heaven while we are here uh, on earth? In verse 22, in verse 22, he begins giving us the imperatives of what we are to do, uh, saying, let us, of which he'll continue to repeat in verses 23 and 24. But all of these let us, these commands, are based upon the indicative. And that is to say what Christ has already accomplished in verses 19 through 21. And so as the preacher says, we do draw near to God in heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ's new covenant and in union with his finished work through faith. Through the blood of Jesus Christ's new covenant and in union with this finished work through faith. Uh, so notice then these two instruments of heavenly access. The first is Christ's blood in verse 19, which is equivalent to Christ's flesh in verse 20, which are both ways of summarizing his redeeming sacrifice. Indeed, his entire work from incarnation to his very session where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so then based upon his finished work, Christ gained access into heaven. But as our great and eternal high priest, he did not just do so for himself. He did so for us on our behalf to be enjoyed in union with all of his elect. And so we do come to that second instrument. The first is Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ's new covenant. The second uh, is faith. Uh, this second instrument is how we come to enjoy our union with our great eternal high priest as creatures who are bound by time. We are not infinite. We are not eternal uh, we are very much finite and limited. And so the way we are united with our eternal Savior is by faith. And so again, the preacher says, draw near to God's holiness in heaven because of everything Christ has accomplished and doing so through faith. That is, trusting in Jesus, resting in what he has done, and even rejoicing that he has done it for you. Now, uh, considering verses 19 through 22, uh, have you begun to notice the connections 
between our heavenly worship, uh, rather the heavenly worship, which indeed is ours, the heavenly worship and our earthly worship, from verses 19 through 22. Uh, We will hopefully together notice five things, uh, five things about God's word of grace. Uh, So uh, briefly, these are not uh, five new points I'm sneaking in, but these are five uh, sub-points uh, of the reality of what we can notice about our worship compared to heavenly worship uh, as it all is focused around God's word of grace. And so the first is to notice God's word of grace proclaimed and rested in. God's word of grace proclaimed and rested in. There isn't really a key word here uh, to point to, but rather a need for us to kind of step back and notice what's going on. The primary speaker in heaven is God himself. The primary speaker in heaven is God himself. And every word that is uh, spoken or sung by the saints and the angels, it's always words of response to what God has said first and foremost. And at this very moment, you are currently hearing God speak to you through this sermon, which is a proclamation of God's word from the book of Hebrews, which is itself a proclamation of God's word from various texts throughout the Old Testament. And all of this is to declare, uh, as our Lord said in Luke 24 and elsewhere, all of this, all of Scripture, is to declare our absolute hope in the grace of Christ alone. And so we notice the grace, uh, the word of God's grace, uh, proclaimed and rested in. The second is to notice God's word of grace, uh, how it gives life in the Lord's Supper. The second is to notice that God's word of grace gives life in the Lord's Supper. And here's where we do Uh, Indeed, we can begin to notice some key words. And so we hear of Christ's flesh and blood in verses 19 and 20. And as our Lord makes very clear uh, elsewhere in texts like Luke 22, uh, and another text like John 6, both his flesh and his blood are indeed signified in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. And so as Jesus says in John 6, whoever drinks my blood enjoys true drink. Whoever eats my flesh enjoys true food. Indeed, this person will never die. Ever. They will always live. And this is referring to that sacramental reality of enjoying God's sustaining grace through faith in Christ in his new covenant meal, especially on the Lord's day as we are called to worship. And so whoever consumes uh, the Lord's Supper rightly, Paul helps us uh, further understand, whoever consumes the Lord's Supper rightly enjoys God's heavenly nourishment in this life on earth because its source is in heaven itself because it is Jesus Christ himself uh, who is the giver and sustainer of our life forever. And so he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Third is to notice where... And to whom God's word of grace is given, namely in the church. And so verse 21, we hear about the house of God. And knowing that the earthly places of holiness in the old covenant are long gone and done away with in Christ, never to return. Remembering how the preacher said in Hebrews 3 verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are God's house. And we are God's house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, we can rejoice in knowing that this house of God is the people of God, gathered by the Spirit and in union with Jesus Christ. 
And again, in the glory of heaven, uh, what is the temple? What is the new Jerusalem that is seen by John in Revelation 21? It is the people of God. He sees the people of God in perfect union with Jesus Christ, whom Peter calls our cornerstone, whom Paul calls our foundation. We are God's house. But it has nothing to do with this building that we are in or any building projects you may have. Instead, it has everything to do with our communion with God and our union with Jesus Christ. Fourth is to notice, fourth is to notice our grateful response to God's word of grace in prayer. Fourth is to notice our grateful response to God's word of grace in prayer. So as we heard in verse 22, Uh, Because of Christ's grace, we are called, therefore, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And, of course, this is certainly done in uh, the faith of our hearts, but it is especially enjoyed uh, in public worship through the means of prayer. And that is what prayer is. It is our right. Prayer is our right. Prayer is our privilege. It is our privilege not only to approach God, but even to speak to Him. Not just to speak to him, but to expect a response every single time, since we only do so through that inseparable union and the ongoing mediation of Jesus. And where are these prayers offered up to? But uh, to our God, who is where? In heaven, through Jesus, our great high priest, who intercedes on our behalf forever, and who says he is joined, uh, as, as we are promised, joined by the Holy Spirit who prays for us even when we do not know what to say. And as the preacher has already said in Hebrews 4.16, although God's throne is majestic in holy glory, something uh, to strike fear and terror, although that is true, we are nevertheless able to draw near to him with confidence, for this throne is a throne of grace. This holy and majestic throne is a throne of grace for us where we will find mercy and help every time, especially in our time of need. And so we come to the fifth brief point. First is to notice the word of grace proclaimed and rested. Second is the word of grace, how it gives life in the Lord's Supper. Third is where and to whom God's word of grace is given, namely in the church. Fourth is to notice our grateful response to God's word of grace in prayer. And fifth is to notice the promise of God's word of grace bearing fruit from our baptism, as you have all just seen this very day, to uh, notice the promise of God's word of grace, how it is bearing fruit from baptism. And so we notice this in verse 22. With our hearts, it says, having been sprinkled clean, and it goes on, it says, our bodies washed with pure water. And this is exactly what is signified to us and to our children in the waters of baptism. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 3 how Noah enjoyed a baptism of God's salvation through God's judgment in the day of the flood. And how in the new covenant he says our baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Peter immediately uh, declares where Jesus is this very moment. He says, having gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
the preacher here uses the exact same language as Paul does in places like Colossians 2.11, where there Paul equates Christ's sacrificial death with both circumcision and baptism, having fulfilled the former, that is circumcision, and having established the latter, that is new covenant baptism. Just as Christ descended into death under the wrath of God, and yet rose to his new creation life in glory, so too do we enjoy the promise of safe passage through God's judgment in Jesus Christ, even looking forward to the same hope of heavenly rest in glory, the very rest that he now himself enjoys and waits to bring us to. So we notice these five points as they correspond to our earthly worship and heavenly worship. But now we ask, where do, where, where do we draw near to God in heaven while we are still here on earth? It is through the church's public worship of God in Christ. It is when you have officially been called to worship the triune God. And so going through the rest of verses 23 to 25, it is here. It is right here in public worship where we hold fast to the hope of Christ's gospel, as he says in verse 23. It's here where we stir up one another to love and good works in response to his gospel, as he says in verse 24. It's here where we meet together to encourage one another in this very gospel and doing so especially because we know that Christ's judgment day is at hand, as he says in verse 25. And so where others would try to hide from God's judgment or maybe worse, try to ignore it, we do neither of these things. We do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. We do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Instead, we make sure to gather together to enjoy heaven on earth every single time we gather in the name of Jesus Christ as his church on his day, the Lord's day, to join with the saints in heaven, to worship God, to receive his sustaining grace, especially his three chosen means of grace in word, sacraments, and prayer. And this we do not based upon the shakiness of our many different preferences, which are often so idolatrous, but because of the assurance of God's unchanging promise, which is always holy and most pure. And this does bring us to the second reason why we are called to join God's heavenly worship on earth in Christ. And that is because of the warning. Because rejection of earthly worship is, ultimately, rejection of God's grace, as we hear in verses 26 to 31. So what kind of deliberate sin does the preacher have in mind in verse 26? What kind of deliberate sin? Uh, He is referring to the deliberate rejection of public worship on earth. And the warning here is so severe because this is equivalent to rejection of Christ's gospel. Since, again, Christ's main purpose in his gospel is to bring us into communion with our triune God in his perfect heavenly worship and to be nourished by him through his means of grace, even while we remain here on earth. And the words he uses are essential to a right, a correct understanding of this warning. In verse 25, he tells them to not neglect to meet together. Uh, But maybe it would be more helpful to be translated as it. Uh, as in this way, do not abandon 
our gathering. Do not abandon our gathering. So this warning isn't really about them not hanging out as much as they wish they could on Friday nights. It's about how some have abandoned and how they have abandoned the gathering, the most significant time, the most significant day of our lives on earth, as they are to gather together on the Lord's day in the priestly mediation of the Lord Jesus to worship the triune God as God's own redeemed people, as citizens of his kingdom, and to receive God's preserving grace unto glory, even through his final judgment, for it is coming. Public worship is not merely the place you go on Sundays. It is the holy time, and it is the holy place of God's own eternal rest, touching down, as it were, in this earthly realm upon his holy day, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord's resurrection, where God does demand that we worship him exactly as he prescribes, and yet where God welcomes us to worship him in Christ even where God causes us to succeed in worshiping him in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, and furthermore, where he nourishes you all the way through from start to finish in his word that is read and preached, as well as his word that is signified and sealed to you in the sacraments, and where we are allowed the high privilege of responding in thanksgiving and gratitude through prayer, and even in song, and even in our confession, and including our offering. And so again, to reject the purpose of God's grace, which is to worship him, and to reject the means of God's grace that he provides in public worship is ultimately to reject the grace of Christ himself. And so what then is the ultimate punishment for this level of deliberate rejection of worshiping God in Christ, of deliberately abandoning uh, this gathering? It is nothing less than the fear of God's everlasting judgment in hell. As the preacher says in verse 26 through 27, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is, as the preacher has been doing throughout uh, the book of Hebrews, this is once again referring to the unforgivable sin of apostasy, but from a different angle, regarding those who have abandoned the gathering of God's people. Christ's forgiveness does extend to all sins of all of his people in all times and places, but not to the sin of rejecting his grace. God's Uh, God's gospel in Christ Jesus is literally our only hope. And if you reject your only hope, then you have no hope. And without hope, you are left to still face the wrath of God alone. And you will be required to give an answer for all of your sin. But then why does the preacher conclude, seems to conclude his point here by bringing up the old covenant law of Moses in verse 28? He brings up Moses and the Old Covenant law, that system, to show that the severity of judgment on earth in the Old Covenant, even unto execution, was actually nothing compared to the severity of Christ's final judgment to come, especially now that the New Covenant has arrived. 
Once again, he labors to show how the old covenant was faulty, how it was limited, and indeed in need of replacement by the greater and more glorious new covenant. But not only was the old covenant unable to provide perfect communion with God who is in heaven, is also unable to execute God's perfect judgment on earth. In the time of the old covenant, to refuse to obey the laws of the land could indeed land you uh, into execution, uh, even by your fellow citizens in the nation of Israel. But now that the times of ignorance have passed, now that we are in these last days, the days of Christ's new covenant, to refuse to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to try and trample upon the Son of God and trample him under your feet like trash upon the ground, to consider his most holy blood as having no more significance or purpose or worth than a scuffed knee, to say that the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ's gospel was either a work of Beelzebub and the demons of darkness or a meaningless act of antiquity. Again, to refuse to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ will only lead to everlasting punishment, which will forever be sealed upon you and shut closed on that final day of his judgment, just before the dawn of his new creation. But why else does he do this? Finally, he also does this to remind us of God's word from Deuteronomy 32. And he does this to end this warning in the only hope that we have, which is the hope of God's grace in Jesus Christ, received through faith from the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 30 to 31, we hear a quotation from Deuteronomy 32, 35 to 36. Deuteronomy 32, 35 to 36, where God does say, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And yet where he also says, The Lord will judge his people. And so there's no doubt, as the preacher concludes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is. But when we as God's people, as those who trust in the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ and the effect that it has for us by the power of the Spirit, when we remember that this judge and Lord is our Savior, and that the hands of the living God are actually the hands of all of our hope, then we will be able to respond like David, who said, Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Here we know that the same hand that executed Christ was the same hand that rose him from the grave. And so in Christ, we did truly die to Satan, to sin, and to death itself. But also in Christ, do we now live unto God, to true love, to real life. The old covenant saints approached a temple only to find that they could not enter into the holy places. And yet through types and through shadows, the elect in that time did have the same faith and the same grace that we rest upon in the new covenant, and that is the same Savior, Jesus Christ. But again, how that God, uh, now that God rather, now that God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, as this preacher said in Hebrews chapter 1, now that God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, we enjoy the greater revelation that we are the temple of God. 
We are the temple of God in whom he is pleased to dwell. We have perfect access into the holy presence of God in heaven. For we are united to Christ himself as our eternal high priest who is in heaven. And this is our joy each Lord's Day and nothing else. Where we gather as Christ's church to worship the triune God, our God, on earth as it is in heaven. And so again, because worship on earth is worship in heaven, and following that, rejection of this earthly worship is rejection of God's grace. And we do have every reason to join in faith through Christ, to join God's heavenly worship on earth in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray and give thanks. Our great God of holiness, uh, even the holiness that would consume and kill and destroy, uh, for you are most glorious. Uh, But indeed, this glory has been given to us by way of grace, and so it only gives us life and life forever. We rejoice this day, for we have something to rejoice about. We have hope beyond this uh, faulty and broken life under the sun. We do have life as sons and daughters of the new creation, uh, which is ours. Uh, because of our Savior, Jesus. May we rejoice uh, today. May we find rest. May we find refreshment in this, the gospel uh, of our Lord and Savior. Amen.